Welcome to Church and Other Drugs. Happy Monday, everybody. I hope you're having a good week. I'm sure most of you are uh, out of college or school or whatever you do, or you're at work, in which case, have a productive day at work. Uh, Today, we are bringing back Brian Gadawa, author, uh, mythologist, theologian, all the above. He's got a new book series out, and the first book is called Jezebel. So we're going to talk about some one of my favorite subjects, Watchers, Nephilim, uh, Canaanite, Israelite, ancient gods, uh, some old mythology, some Jewish history, that kind of fun stuff. You know, it's, it's one of my favorite subjects. And... This will be, I'm going to take next week off for Christmas, so all y'all, Merry Christmas, enjoy time with your families, friends, whatever you do. I know it's all a, uh, it's a tough holiday for some of y'all, so feel free to reach out to me if you're feeling squirrely, um, always, always available via Messenger or uh, drugs at gmail.com. I will absolutely stretch out my hand to help out if y'all are struggling this holiday season. Um Another good uh, cure for that will be uh, Star Wars. Going to see it Thursday. I might actually do an extra episode just to talk about that because I'm sure I'm going to want to over and over and over. Yeah, send me emails, churchonthedrug at gmail.com, patreon.com, backslash churchonthedrugs, uh, last-minute Christmas gifts, our merch store, storefrontier.com, slash churchonthedrugs, and y'all just enjoy the episode um have a good vacation be safe out there congregation and we will see y'all in about a week bye do you feel like hanging from a cross do you feel that your paradise is lost when you lie in wide awake counting every mistake do you hate what You've come Would you like To soak your heart in bleach Scrub it white Until all the walls are clean When you're staring in the mirror Black wolf appears Do you hate what you've become? Don't throw <clears throat> Brian Godawa, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Great, man. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Where? Uh, what state are you in again? California. I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, that's right. So I was going to ask how the weather is, and the answer <laughs> is it's beautiful. Well, you know, you uh, actually right now it's pretty cold. Now, what's I'm a, cold? Yeah. <laughs> what is it's cold? In the, it's in the sixties oh <laughs> instead God. of the seventies. <laughs> suffering, suffering over there. Yeah. <laughs> so you had um, reached out, and I'm I'm pretty stoked. Tell so you got a new book that is coming out. It's out. It's out. It's just out. out within the month. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, so what uh tell us about it. Let's get we'll start with a, a brief overview. Sure. Uh Jezebel Harlot Queen of Israel is my latest novel. And uh it's already a bestseller on biblical fiction on Amazon. Oh, uh like I said, yeah. 
Yeah, it's just been out a month, and um, so that's all great. And uh, so Jezebel, Harley Queen of Israel, is the first novel in my new series, Chronicles of the Watchers. And Chronicles of the Watchers is a series that charts the rise and fall of the uh, the uh, spiritual ter- spiritual principalities and powers that rule over the nations in ancient history. And I got that concept from studying the Bible. And um, the uh, Chronicles of the Watchers is is very much of a companion or a sequel series to my previous uh, best-selling series, Chronicles of the Nephilim. And that series was launched years, uh, you know, quite a few years back with uh, Noah Primeval. And the inspiration of the series, it, it's the same worldview, it's the same universe that uh, Chronicles of the Watchers is in. So, and that universe is roughly twofold elements that that I I found to be fascinating. I wanted to write novels on it. Uh, the first is that the um, you know, the strangest passage in the Bible to me had always been Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And that's mm-hmm. where it talked about how the sons of God who are divine heavenly beings or divine angels of some kind, they came to earth and they mated with the daughters of men and they bore them the Nephilim. And the word Nephilim is actually Hebrew transliteration that means, actually it's Aramaic translation, that means giant. And so this idea of giants in the Bible um, runs throughout the Bible, and, you know, we read about Goliath, but there's also other giants that many people miss, and they don't understand that there are um, there are names names of giant clans in the Bible, like the Anakim, the Rephim, the Zamzumim, and, and these kinds of things, and that had always been odd to me. What, what are these giants all about? And, and as I studied the issue, I, I came to realize that it's actually a, a narrative thread that goes throughout the Bible, and Basically, they are they are considered to be the seed of the serpent. Meaning, um, in the in in Genesis, when the the serpent was cursed by God, God said, "I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman, seed of Eve." Right, and the seed of the serpent. Then, and and then the very first gospel message was given in that curse. God said, "He uh, the serpent will crush the woman's heel, and the woman will crush the serpent's head." Sometimes that's translated as bite the woman's heel, but it's the same word as crush the head. So it's sort of like a mutual uh, battle going on there, you know. And, and, and anyone who studied messianic prophecies knows that the idea of crushing the serpent's head is a messianic prophecy. And that then launches what I call the war of the sea between these rival, you know, um, rival people of the people of God versus the people of Satan, right? Sure. And so by the time the Israelites get into the, enter the promised land, it's crawling with giants called the Anakim or the Rephaim, and uh, they're supposed to wipe them out. And because they represent that, that, that uh, viol- you know, they basically they represent the violation of God's holy separation standards when he said, keep uh, heaven and earth separated, keep humanity and deity separated, keep the animals and humanity separated, right? He separated the woman from the man. All that kind of separation stuff reflects the holiness understanding of God. And so by the angels violating that separation and mating with humans, creating those hybrids or chimeras, you know, um, strange thing indeed, yes, I know, but um, that was a violation of that, right? And so, so they were supposed to clear the land of those, and and they did. So by the time of da- King David, David had finished wiping out 
all those giants. You know, when Joshua went in the land, it said that he, he hunted down and got rid of all the Anakim, except in Philistia. And he left some in Philistia, and then those ended up becoming the enemies of David. But David was the first Messiah. He was literally the anointed one means a Messiah. And um, uh, David was the first Messiah king for Israel. Well, actually, I guess Saul was the first king of Israel, right? And he was anointed. But um, the king was considered anointed. And David became that symbol of the coming Messiah, right? But under David, he actually finished wiping out all the, all the Rephaim giants. So after that point in the Bible, you never hear anything more about giants, but you do read about them beforehand. And that's what Chronicles of the Nephilim was about. But there's another element that I also brought into that Chronicles that is also in the Watchers, and that is this. <clears throat> I call it the Divine Council uh, theme or the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. And, it, and that is based on many passages in the Bible, including Psalm 82, but one classic passage is Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10. And, and there in there, Moses writes about how at the Tower of Babel, when man was trying to become God again after the flood, he just would not, just kept refusing to worship God and continue to worship idols. Um, so God said, okay, I've had it. I'm going to separate you into the 70 nations by dividing, separating your tongues so you can't understand each other, and then you'll be separated, and that will protect humanity from unifying into great evil, right? But it also says that, he, pl I'm, he said, I'm going to place you under the authority of the sons of God. I'm going to allot you as their inheritance, but Jacob or Israel will be my allotted inheritance. And the notion there that's going on is, the Jewish understanding, really the ancient world's understanding, was that the nations were under the authority of spiritual powers, and so consequently, Israel saw themselves as Yahweh was their allotted inheritance, and he was theirs, and their land, the land of Canaan, which God gave them, that was Yahweh's land. But all the other Gentile nations, those were ruled over by those evil, fallen sons of God. In other words, they, God's saying like, okay, you're going to worship those, then I'm going to put you under their authority and see how you like it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's that yeah, kind of a yeah. thing. And, and so the, the biblical understanding is that the, there are, over the earthly authorities, there are spiritual authorities. So this is why whenever you have a bi in the Bible some kind of battle or something on earth, there's often a reflection of a corresponding battle in heaven. So by the time we get to Daniel, you read about the prince of Persia fighting with the prince of Greece, and Michael, the archangel, is the prince of Israel. And scholars will tell you that, you know, that those are not earthly princes. Those are heavenly princes. And the idea was that when Persia and Greece were battling or, or what have you, then the, their spiritual entities were battling as well. So this is sort of the principle of the watchers. They watch over the nations, right? So that was also in Chronicles of the Nephilim. Um, but, but I realized that there was more stories to tell. And so Chronicles of the Watchers will roughly be after that time period of David, although I, in truth, I'm going to go back and pick out a few other stories. But basically, the Watchers now focuses more on the Watchers over the nations. But and I'm going to start with Bible stories. The first one is Jezebel, but it's going to expand out, I hope, and we'll Hopefully, I'll tell stories of other nations like the British Isles or the Americas, something like that. But the first one oh, is that, yeah, that would be awesome. That's, yeah, that's yeah. What I've been reading into lately is the yeah, the the old uh, Native American giant legends. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. 
So that's kind of cool. And I've already gotten the second book in Chronicles of the Watchers, which has been released, called Chin, Dragon Emperor of China. And that's that one of the first books. So these the Chronicles of the Watchers are not in, necessarily in order, mm-hmm. but um, you can, you know, if you want to figure out what the actual historical order is and read them, they will work, but they're not written in order. And Chin talks about the history of China and the first emperor of China and what connections he had to the Tower of Babel and stuff like that. So... Um, that's, that's sort of the big picture series of what I'm telling. And, and what I do is I, I'm, uh, so the first one Jezebel ref, you know, references, I try to be historically and biblically accurate. And so I do a lot of research and I tell, retell the biblical story, for example, in Jezebel, but I also tell the, uh, uh you know, a fictional story because we don't know what's really going on behind the veil in the spiritual realm. Sure, the Bible hints at it, but that's about all it does, right? So, so I tell a story about what might be going on in the spiritual realm that corresponds to the physical historical realm. So, consequently, you know, the premise is this: imagine if, you know, you know how the ancient world worshipped false gods, like uh, in in Canaan they worshipped Baal, Asherah, Ashtar. Well, I, I thought, well, what, what if those, fault, those gods that we always assume don't exist, what if there was a true demonic reality behind them? What if they were these fallen watchers who were masquerading as gods? After all, the watchers are these bad guys who are in authority over the nations, and these nations are worshiping these false gods. And the Bible actually gives some demonic reality behind these watchers. So therefore, you know, like like I said, like in Daniel ten, I think it is. So I thought, well, maybe those those are the those watchers are the beings that are are masquerading as the gods Baal and Asherah. So I tell those stories of the watchers and how they're battling and jockeying for power. And you know, one of the one of the things that I do, it's sort of like the Godfather. You know, uh, they're sort of like the mafia. You know, a lot of times when we think of the spiritual realm and demons, we we tend to see them as they're all unified in their defiance against God, and they're all united front. Yeah, united front. And of course, there is a unity. Yes, but I thought, you know what? No, they're created beings, and even though they're going to have a unity of purpose, they're going to all have their own. agendas and ambitions and they're going to jockey for power within their hierarchy right so i show these different gods and how they're sort of undermining betraying each other trying to get power over the other you know and so baal is the storm god of canaan and he's the ultimate bad guy but the goddesses underneath him like asherah and anat and ashtart they're all trying to jockey for power to take take him over. So that's sort of the, what I'm what I'm doing in in the novel series, and it starts in that way with with Jezebel. And so Asherah is that that was what the Israelites believe was Yahweh's wife. Is that right? Yes. Explain yes, that. That's yeah. actually the first I had heard of that. Yeah. So um, this is a this was as I did research as I've done research in more recent years. I've sort of come to realize that. My evangelical upbringing, you know, what I've been taught as as a Christian, has been kind of not not entirely accurate, you know. Um, uh, yes. So 
I yeah, my my my, my picture has been sort of like, okay, the Jews were monotheists, right? You worship Yahweh. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, you read the Bible, it's like, wow, they occasionally had lapses into polytheism, right? Where they would worship Baal or Asherah. And quite, my, my quite a few lapses in quite a it's, few. It's like we, we we gloss over the fact that like they immediately like build a golden calf. It's like that kind yeah. of assumes that that was like second nature to them. Like, all right, well, let's just go back to the default uh, idol worship. Exactly. And so as I studied it, and particularly archaeology has shown us that in Israelite in uh, cities and stuff that that they did actually worship Asherah as Yahweh's wife. Now, does this mean that it was uh, acceptable to God or that it was normal to the scriptures? Or pro- No, of course not. And so my picture was one of Oh, they ancient Jews were like Christians, you know, like maybe we Christians are are God's people, but well, some of us have besetting sins and and like maybe alcoholism or pornography, right? And when we fall off the wagon, we get, you know, drunk or watch porn and then we repent and come back and that's kind of how it was with Israel. And um I now realize no, it's that's really not how it was. They they were not monotheists who had occasional lapses into polytheism. They were polytheists who had occasional lapses into monotheism, and that's what a lot of archaeology has shown. And um, you know, liberal what liberal uh, skeptics or uh, critical scholars will then argue is they would say, ah, see, that's really what Israel really was all about. Uh, 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 Judaism, it was actually, actually worshiping God as gods and goddesses. And then, sometime after the exile, the priests came out and f- and and wiped it all out and forced everyone to worship one God. And and no, that's really not. I mean, I think the biblical picture is more accurate. And that was what you said: is that even though they were called by God to worship Him. They were just completely corrupted for hundreds of years. So therefore, you have examples where, uh, yeah, that we found archaeological artifacts that says uh, Yahweh of Samaria and his Asherah. And Asherah was the mother goddess. And in the Canaanite uh, theology, a lot of the goddesses were escorts to the gods. So in Canaanite mythology, Asherah was El's escort or concubine in, or, right or something like okay that. i was about to say what's the context for wife. escort in that actually okay. i'm sorry asherah was the wife of l okay. l was the name of the high god but l was sort of like a you know an old guy foolish guy who he didn't really do much and in that mythology baal was the one who was the storm god and he rose to power with the help of asherah and uh baal had a sister named anat who was a warrior goddess and um, so, so Baal rises up to be this, uh, the most high within the pantheon, although over him there was El. El was basically passive, and that's, that's what's going on there. And so nevertheless, Israelites did draw from that mythology and sort of spin their own version of it and added Yahweh. So it wasn't that they didn't worship Yahweh and then worship these other gods. It's that they would worship Yahweh and Asherah and Baal. And, you know, right, that kind of a thing. And for mm-hmm. us in this day and age, it's hard to per- conceive that. It's like, how could everyone? But, you know, this is the Iron Age, and and uh, the worldview is very, very different. And, it, and, and, and in other words, they didn't see it as necessarily ant- antithetical. Obviously, God and the prophets were telling them that it was. So in, in telling the story of Jezebel, I depicted uh, an Israel that would be uh, more realistic to that picture of Israelites worship Asherah and all these goddesses and gods and how what would that be like trying to implement that 
that uh, syncretistic sort of meshing of Canaanite religion with Israel religion. And then along comes the prophet Elijah. And, of course, he started the line of the major prophets that would call Israel back to Yahweh. But they were the ones who were saying, you know, you've got to stop this stuff. And and um, I, so I tell the story of Elijah and Jezebel. And many people are familiar with, uh, you know, the Mount Carmel episode where Elijah calls down fire from heaven. And, and it's a really big, dramatic, spectacular experience. But it's interesting because even though there is that, you know, Elijah is a main character in the story. I actually ended up telling my protagonist of the story, the real, uh, I'd say Elijah is more like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the story. Mm -hmm. And my hero, so to speak, is Jehu. And Jehu is the character. And why is because really it was all about Jehu versus Jezebel because Jehu was the one who ended up killing Jezebel and he was the one who ended up becoming king in replacement of the line of Ahab. He replaced that line of Ahab, and Jehu ended up wiping out Baal worship in Israel. Now, Jezebel was the one who brought Baal worship into Israel, so Jehu getting rid of it, that makes the, he's more of the protagonist of the story. Who's Jehu? Well, Jehu was actually the army, the, the commander of the armies of Ahab. Ahab was the king of Israel. So in a way, Jehu's story is one of, you know, he serves the king. He believes the king is God's anointed one, right? And so like David, he would not hurt the king because the king's God's anointed, right? But what happens when the king becomes so wicked and corrupt that, that he violates God's own commands? And so that's the journey. The journey of Jehu is as a man who wants to serve Yahweh and be pure, but also wants to be obedient to authority. But what happens when authority is out of control? Which kind of is not too different from what's going on today, if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, oh yeah, that's what I thought I was going to say. It sounds very, very familiar. The, the, and this, this is kind of a side note, but it's <laughs> when you spoke about like your uh, evangelical raising and how it's it's uh, you, the more you dig in, the more you find out new things. I was going to ask. So how does where does the character of uh, Ha Satan or Satan, you know, where does he fit in in this hierarchy? Because um, that's probably been the biggest thing that I, I had. I I just knew it. Yeah, Satan is in charge of everything. He's the main bad yeah. guy, whatever. And then that, when I the more I read, it's like that is so. That's kind of plucked from the air, right? So yeah, how, yeah, how, yeah. It is. How, if, and when, and what does he fit into all of that? Well, I I don't have any. I don't have certainties, but I, I definitely am no longer of that mindset so much that. Like Satan is the lead monster, in, not in the Old Testament. Now, um, there's some interesting study uh, research that has been done on on that that might suggest that the Satan of the New Testament is more is more referred to as a personal being than he is in the Old Testament, and that he, Jesus kind of links him to. Baal, because, you know, he talks about how he's casting out the demons and calls Baalzebub the, the prince of demons, and, and it, he uses the word Satan. But interestingly, what you're referring to is the word Satan is actually not a pronoun. It's not the name of a person. It's uh, an office. It's a transli it's transliteration. It means, Hasatan means the adversary. And which I wish they would actually translate more accurately like that in the Bible. You would, mm -hmm. you would understand the picture very, very differently. 
And of course, in the Old Testament, there is several places where the adversary shows up, but God is called the Satan at one point. And that's not because the Bible's confused and contradictory. It's that, you know, he just, and in that point in the story, God was the adversary to this person that, you know, so it, it, it's more, it's more of a, of an office of something that a being that would challenge and prosecute lawsuits against Israel. And in many ways in the Old Testament, that that Hasatan, the, the adversary character, is more a part of God's divine counsel, not saying he's right. always good, but he's not like evil conniving character. He actually does the work of God in terms of prosecuting and accusing. And that's kind of a very different picture than what we than we yes. what we get. So when I when I re- and he doesn't really show up in many places, and it's really honestly, if it weren't for if it weren't for uh, Revelation twelve, where you know John seems to at least conceptually connect the Satan to the dragon and the serpent in the garden, I wouldn't even consider the serpent in the garden to be the Hasatan um, myself because he doesn't really show up anywhere else. Um, except in a couple of those passages of lawsuits in heaven. So consequently, I think that, uh, uh, but there is some good arguments that maybe Baal is basically that, that, that being because he was the one who was the supreme god of Canaan that was basically uh, the ultimate you know, bad guy versus Yahweh, Yahweh versus Baal. But there were other gods and goddesses. So what my stories do is I sort of take the surrounding gods and goddesses, and you don't really see Satan. Satan shows up in a few of my stories, you know, but I try to not to call him Satan. I try to call him other names because he's the adversary, and there could be different beings who are playing the adversary at different times. Sure. So in my novels, you'll see different gods being the leader at the different times of history. Like, for instance, you know, in the time of King David, uh, Dagon is, le- is key because all the other guys were wiped out. And Dagon was the god of Philistines, and he's the ultimate enemy of God at that moment. Um, Baal shows up as well. but And in Jezebel, Baal is the storm god of Canaan. So he he's the ultimate bad guy in that story. But yeah, it's it's a sort of a different picture than what we've been what we've been told. Now and and this is also kind of a this is obviously purely just opinion because I don't I don't know if I ever asked. Do you how do you take these stories personally and i'm sure it's evolved over the years but are you a literalist are you because you're obviously a student of of metaphor and myth, uh, mythology and it's all and you're a fiction writer and it's all incredibly fascinating and interesting stuff but how do you do you take this as things that happened yeah i basically do i don't call myself a literalist anymore because not because i don't believe the bible is literal sure it's to me that what literalism is is basically what I call hyperliteralism. That is, when someone yeah. says, "Oh, I'm, I take the Bible literally," what they're really saying is, "I take everything at face value as I yes. interpret it." Yeah. And what I've come to discover is, if you read the text through the ancient Jewish eyes, uh, what we think is literal, they did not, and what they what we think isn't literal, sometimes they think was. So, so you have to read it through their eyes, and when you do that. You become you you become a much more you take the Bible literarily rather than literally, which means yeah I I think they basically think that you know a lot of things are historical and and such, but the way they write history is very different. They're very they're more willing to use 
hyperbole in history or uh, imprecise language. It's not scientifically precise like we tend to be in this day and age. So we cannot apply, I try not to apply our categories of measurement from science to literary to history. I try not to impose it on them, but try to interpret within their, within their worldview to make sense of it. And because of that, yeah, I, there's a lot of things that I think Christians think are literal, obviously are literal, but they're obviously not if you're yeah. reading it through the eyes of a Jew, yeah. an ancient Jew in particular. So, yeah, um, so therefore, but however, in general, I do believe that, you know, this notion of spiritual authorities and stuff, principalities and powers and demonic realities, I believe that is basically real. What that really looks like, there's I don't know, and I'm not sure. And and um, uh, you know, my books are fiction, so I write theological novels. That is, I believe in the theological truth of the Bible in every way. But what that theology is intending to do, and whether or not it's intended to be literal at different times, or metaphorical, or figurative, or what have you, or poetic, or hyperbole, you know, yeah. that is all a complex issue. And I'm willing to to uh, you know keep ambiguous until I understand things fuller. So no, therefore, when you know, when you get passages, uh, and then I'll I'll shut up so you can ask me another. <laughs> um, so when you because people hear this and well, what do you mean? What do you mean? What's not literal? You know, you get these passages, and prophecy is the worst culprit in all this stuff. Modern day Christians they they read prophecy and they read it like it's scientific literalism. It's just ridiculous because it's like, you know, the stars will fall from the sky and the sun will go black and the moon will turn to blood. Well, that's obviously literal. And it's, no, it's not because if you study the ancient Jewish literature, you find, and I've, I've written about this extensively in books like uh, my book, End Times Bible Prophecy, you find that that language is used very commonly, and when you look it up everywhere and you compare the passages, you discover that the language of the universe collapsing was always used in reference to whenever a nation, city, or a people were judged or, uh, you know, were judged in war or battle or what have you. So, for instance, when God says, I'm going to come to Babylon and I'm going to judge you, you know, I'm going to use Assyria to judge you or whatever. And and he says, the stars will fall from the sky, the moon will turn to blood. That's the notion that the heavenly authorities are falling and the powers are being overturned. It was metaphor. They always intended it that way. It was never literal. Now, I, I, okay, I won't say never literal. Okay, I would say it was not usually literal because sometimes there were some literal things that did occur. But the moon turning to blood does, does not have to be literal. It could be a metaphor of, you know, the, the bloody power of what happens when you have coup d'etats or when you have a one nation whip, whipping up another nation. And uh, most of the time, that's what it turns out to be. Yeah, there are some times where there might be an earthquake or something like that. But in general, uh, all that language of the earth, earth you know, crumbling, rumbling and everything falling apart, that's talking about a spiritual, um, the spiritual reality of the historical event. Yeah. And, and that's a that's a really great level-headed approach to it and that's where I've landed as well and I will admit that I was very guilty of the kind of co-opting of the Nephilim and the Watchers by the conspiracy community and linking that to modern day and Obama was a lizard person and yeah yeah you know and it's been like okay you're taking and I've actually gone on other shows to try to present like your stuff and Michael Heiser this like the it's it's not I'm it's uh trying to present it as look this isn't 
I'm not telling you that I'm not even going to say that necessarily this is literal, but let's not yeah. misrepresent the the facts. Like this is what the Bible is saying. This is what the ancient Israelites were saying and what they believed. And don't listen to the louder voices that have kind of just taken it and used it to, you know, predict the world's going to end every December, you know, for yeah, yeah. every no. year. You say you make a good point because I'm definitely in Heiser's camp where and I think that I, I like the way he puts it. He says the main purpose of the text in the Bible is theological messaging. And that I believe with all my heart. And therefore, you know, but but how much of that is literal and how much is not? It's complex and it's not easy to answer. And so therefore, to me, it's not about literalizing everything and that that uh, desire to literalize came from the turn of the century in the 1900s when fundamentalism was trying to defend the faith against liberalism liberalism had started to mythologize everything ah it's just myth it's just fable it's just and so they said no it's not no it's not it really happened but what in order to fight the extreme skepticism they became extreme on the other side and they they tried to therefore prove everything the bible says is true therefore it's the word of god and it's like they completely lost track of the context, and therefore they created this this mentality that still resides in a lot of residue of Christian uh, circles, which is this sort of like you 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 think that it's not the word of God if it's not all literal, and it's like well well that's your assumption that you're importing on the text. What if the author didn't intend it to be that way? And if exactly. the only way you can find out is to study it and f- seek to find the original intent of the author, not impose your own assumptions, which which is in a sense is imperialism. It's like modern arrogance yes. saying, yes. "No, these you know these stars falling from the sky must be literal." And oh, it's really? lazy. It's really lazy. It's, uh, oh, it is lazy. It is totally it's, lazy. It's, so. It's, yeah, and and these you're right. The end times. So so while I believe in the 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 you know the meaning of the Nephilim and the Watchers in in the text, I too am not in the Nephilim nut camp where you know it's like yeah the Nephilim are going to return and the Antichrist is going to come up and all this kind of stuff. And you know if you want to understand where you know a, a better uh, a detailed biblical picture of that, my book Psalm eighty two. Uh, which is available. It's actually a booklet. It's not full. It's like a, a short book, and it's on Amazon, and you know you can get a paperback or digital. And it, I I go through the theology of the divine council of the gods, mm-hmm. the judgment of the watchers, and the inheritance of the nations, and it, it deals with all that stuff, like the Nephilim and stuff. But my book, um, when giants were upon the earth, that one talks about more detail about the Nephilim and stuff, and and the odd occultic things of the Bible. But yeah, so basically, I believe it's it's true and it's theologically real. But what that reality looks like in our world, it, it could be in any one of a number of different things, and I'm not always sure of what it is. Sure. But in basic, basically, I do believe that there were you know principalities, uh, spiritual powers behind nations, and what that really looked like was how I tried to picture it theologically in my novels so yeah that's why i say i'm not writing scripture i'm writing theological novels that try to communicate that message that i think is there well and and as a narrative and as a way of explaining i'm i'm very much on the same page and and as the more i've read into it and i'm I'm also like a big student of mythology and book like the whole believer of there is truth in all of that at at what point and at what levels you know i'm not going to make that claim but as a narrative in or as a lens in looking at conflicts in in our earth's history and nations 
it does make sense. It you know the more you as an explanation, I'm I'm okay with it, and it it makes sense. Yeah, and you know I can even see how it can make sense today. Uh, a lot of people do believe it applies to today these washers and stuff. However, I do have a different view from uh, a, a lot of the you know uh, a lot of those end times views because I I actually believe that that the whole promise of the old covenant, all this stuff about watchers being over the nations, it's all rooted in the old covenant. Because it was the old covenant that where God said, I will covenant with my people Israel, but the Gentile nations will be covenanted with these other gods. But when the Messiah comes, he destroy, you know, he abolishes the old covenant, he brings in a new covenant, and he disinherits. The Psalm 82 says that at the resurrection of the Messiah, this is this is theology. It's you got to study it to see what I'm where I'm getting at. But when the Messiah rises from the dead, basically, that's when he disinherits the nations and he takes them back from these watchers. Why? So that people from every tribe and every nation could now come into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. So this new covenant, I think, is what demolishes the the, the territorial spirits and the watchers, and they don't have power over the nations anymore. They were they were literally vanquished by Jesus in his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven and his judgment upon Israel in AD 70. So that's a very different picture from a lot of uh, yeah. end times Christians believe. Uh, and so that's why they believe that there are still watchers going on right now. And they go into these detailed descriptions of, of how these spiritual entities are real. And honestly, I, I think man's evil is far more greater than that. In other words, they're attributing sure. great evil that's going on in this world. They're attributing it to other creatures, not man. Which, think about it, that's blame shifting. It is. And I, it's easier I, to swallow. Yes. And I say, of course, now I do believe there is demonic influence to some degree. There are evil spirits. I, you know, I don't know how that all works. But these territory powers and stuff like that, Jesus would not be Messiah if they were still here because the new covenant that destroys that old covenant. And so, therefore, I say, you know what? No. I think the evil that we see that's going on, whether it's Islam or socialism or all this stuff that's going on in the world, it's it's man. Man deserves hell, and he deserves judgment. And we don't need watchers to explain our sin. We are that evil. And I so I think they're actually degrading the sinfulness of humanity. They're 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 lessening it by by saying that. That's that's my personal bit. But look, you know, I realize I'm I'm very open too. I mean, I may be wrong, and, and I'm always open to hearing other explanations. And I'm friends with a lot of these guys. Um, and we, we, you know, we have discussions about it and such, and I'm even, sometimes some of them let me on their show and they're very friendly. So, you know, it's, it's a friendly disagreement in that yeah, sense. There, there's you know? room at the table. Yeah. yeah but in the true. meantime, I'm like, okay, here's the thing though. I, by finding this theological thread, this narrative of watchers and the war of the seed, I call it the war of the seed, you know, the seed of the serpent and the Nephilim versus the people of God. It was so fascinating. It made the Bible come alive to me in a, in a fresh new way. And I felt like I wanted to share that with the world. So that's why I'm writing these stories. And that's how people are responding. A lot of them are saying, you know, you're making, you know, I always knew Jezebel or, or Noah, you know, and, but 
I, I, I lost, I lost the connection with it. You know, it became boring to me, but you made it come alive by seeing it with a fresh insight. And that's my goal is to, to go back to the scriptures. So I try to make it completely consistent with the scriptures, but also I, you know, I fictionalize the spiritual realm and I do a lot of historical research and mythological research. So if I can point out one cool thing that I do in the sure. Jezebel book. So it's about Baal as the storm God. Well, First of all, let me set up the story. So you've got Israel is the ninth century there. And keep in mind, this is after King Solomon and, and um, the, there's the divided kingdom. You've got Judah in the south with Jerusalem as the capital and the temple is there. And you've got Israel in the north and the temp capital is in Samaria. And uh, so King Ahab is, is a, a powerful military king, but they're not that advanced in terms of culturally. They are at war with Damascus or the Aramaeans and the Syrians in the north, and Damascus is their capital, right? So what they do is um, they decide to ally to make a treaty with Tyre or what we call Phoenicia, and Phoenicia was on the coast, and they they were in control of the maritime trading and merchants. So so you've got this rich nation, Tyre. They're very sophisticated, kind of like New York and LA type of thing, right? And they're very rich and they're very sophisticated. And they control the economic um, merchant of the seas of all the other nations. And Israel guards the king's highway, which goes through the middle of Canaan. And the king's highway was a travel route that they used for economics all the way from Mesopotamia up in the north and Syria, all the way down to Egypt. So Israel now, with, by by allying with Tyre, they controlled the sea and the land. And, and, that, and this is all historical, right? This is all historical. Okay. It's all in the, in the Bible as well. So what, what they did in order to, to consummate that treaty was how many people do, and they did it in Game of Thrones too. They did it through marriage. And so that's the basis of the story where Jezebel is the daughter of, of the king of Tyre. So she marries Ahab as part of that marriage alliance between the two nations. But what happens is Jezebel is a high priestess of Ashtar. She's a complete pagan and she brings Baal worship into Israel and she ultimately builds a temple of Baal which is, you know, think about the outrageousness of that. But she was allowed to do it, and she started to influence King Ahab very greatly because King Ahab was a compromiser, right? And so he, and 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 one of the things that that I think people have this notion of Jezebel is that she's this wicked seductress, you know, <laughs> yeah, or a prostitute. That's the common insult these days. Yes, and of course the name of my novel is Harlot Queen of Israel, right? Yeah. But that is actually not literal. That's a spiritual metaphor because in the Bible, um, uh, God considered Israel to be his wife. So he would say, you know, Yahweh or Israel, you are my wife and I am your husband. So he saw that spiritual relationship in those terms metaphorically. So when Israel would follow, uh, become unfaithful to Yahweh and worship other gods and goddesses, he would call Israel a harlot or a whore or a prostitute or an adulteress. All those words are used interchangeably. Why? Because they were being spiritually unfaithful to Yahweh. So when Jezebel brings in Baal worship, you can see that's why she's referred to several times in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament as in these this term of, uh, you know, sort of 
spiritual adulteress. It's a spiritual adultery, not a physical one. So actually, in my story, she starts out as quite a good, loving wife and a good queen, and they fall in love, and it's real, you know? It's not false. Um, I don't I don't believe this picture of, you know, snidely whiplash or, you know, evil, yeah. evil, yeah. I just want to just kill and destroy. Every evil villain, in reality or in the movies... <laughs> Uh, believes that what they're doing is good. And if you want to understand evil, you've got to understand evil will always try to justify what they're doing in terms of goodness within their worldview. And so Jezebel comes from this rich, sophisticated culture into a more of a, you know, maybe not Stone Age, but definitely not as not as uh, cultured. And so her understanding is I, these poor peasants they worship one God, and it's it's so stultifying. I'm going to bring them the glories of Baal that will help them. And 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 Baal was the god of fertility of Canaan. He brought the rains, so he he's the one that gives us life, right? So that's her sort of understanding. Now, obviously, Baal worship ends up including and involving child sacrifice, and that is you know there's no justification from our worldview, but within their worldview, and as they understood it. It was they used child sacrifice as a means to appease the gods to protect them from some, you know, uh, uh, tr- uh, uh, traumatic event, whether it's a war or famine or a drought. Was See? was that the? Um, I've seen the image depicted where the the altar of Baal was like a superheated bronze calf, and they would place the child like on the arms of like the superheated metal. Or is well, that like- yes, that's the that's the sort of standard image, and it's the own it's the image that is drawn from. Of course, modern scholarship will just deny that and say, "Oh no, that's just uh, fanciful caricatures created by historians." But um, the only f- descriptions we have are from a few ancient uh, historians that wrote about it, and uh, and they do describe that that's how the how the images looked. It was like a man seated with his hands out. Yeah. Sometimes he had a bull's head, right, or, yeah. or whatever. Um, and so I would say that it probably is a relatively accurate because, um, you know, modern scholarship always tends to be skeptical and tries to dismiss everything as being just made up. But I think there's good reason. And I write – and now's a good time to mention um, – I rather than going into all those little details about uh, skepticism and stuff, I have a companion book that explains the history and the theology behind the novel. Oh, cool. and, and it's called The Spiritual World of Jezebel and Elijah, the biblical background to the novel Jezebel. And when you buy the novel Jezebel, you'll see you can there's a free sign up to get the, the book free, The Spiritual World of Jezebel. So you can get all my theological, historical uh, research for free um, if you just if you get the, the Jezebel novel. And I do that because I found that a lot of Christians particularly really like to have things explained and they like to read the research behind the fiction because they do appreciate fiction, but they also like to know what's real and what what isn't. And, and yeah. uh, you know, I'm okay with that, you know, sometimes because it helps them see that it doesn't have to be all literal. It could just be mythological or it could be theological and it still is meaningful to the Israelites and I try to explain it. So in that book, I talk about everything from human sacrifice to all the gods, and I explain their histories and stuff like that. And one of the elements that I talk about is Baal, and the, there's, a, there's a, a famous epic of Baal that was uh, discovered, uncovered at Ugarit on the coast of Syria. 
and it was it tells the stories of Baal and he's the storm god and various stories and one of those stories is about how they explain the 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 ritual of the fertility cycle you know of of the land and harvest and so Baal was the storm god who brings the rains right so the story was that one of the stories is that Mot the the lord of death captures Baal brings him down into Sheol and that's of course corresponds to you know the um you know the winter or whatever and fall and what have you oh, and okay. you know and then Anat his warrior sister goes to rescue Baal and she cuts up Mot into a million pieces and sews him into the ground and takes his brother back and brings him back up and then you hear the ritual is everyone says, where is Baal? Where is Baal? And then he comes back from Sheol. And then that's when the harvest comes and he brings the rains because the storm got. See, so you see the storyline going on there. Well, I, interestingly, I, if you read the novel Jezebel, I incorporate that story into my story of Jezebel. And I tie it into the whole Mount Carmel episode because what, what was the whole purpose of Mount Carmel? Mount Carmel was they had a three-year drought. Je- Elijah called the drought in order to mock and 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 uh, put down Baal, the storm god, who's supposed to bring rains. You know, he's saying, "You think Baal's your storm god? Well, Yahweh is the true storm god. I'm going to stop the rain, and your Baal can't bring it back." Right. Nice. So that's kind of what was going on with there. And so that's what the drought's about. So when they go to Mount Carmel, it's not just about uh, answering from heaven with fire, which would probably is a way of describing lightning, right? Uh, but it's also about bringing the rain. And it's about which God is the storm God. And so that's what's going beyond, beyond behind the, the curtain, or that's what's going on in that story. So I bring a story. What, well, what would... what? What was going on in the spiritual realm? I don't know for sure, but theologically, I tell my story where I incorporate that Baal epic and and all that, and 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 incorporate it into the story in a way that you'll learn about the um, the ancient uh, Canaanite religion as well. But how, you know, Israelite religion is of course ultimately superior because Yahweh is the true God. Well, and um, Brian, we're kind of winding down on time, but I wanted to ask this question because it's it's um, have you. Do you have plans in the future, or have you considered uh, exploring like the character of Jesus in a fictional way? Yes, I actually have, um, and I wrote a novel called Jesus Triumphant, and it is the eighth and final novel in Chronicles of the Nephilim, and it brings it brings things to a, a, a climax. It's not the it's not the end of things because the uh, I go into Chronicles of the Apocalypse, which is more about the end. But in Jesus Triumphant, um, Jesus was the Messiah, the Anointed One, who was prophesied to come, and he was the one who would crush the serpent's head. Right. So I believe that his the complex of events, which we call the death, resurrection, ascension, and judgment of the first century Mm -hmm. that jesus went through that complex of events was the victory of messiah over the powers so the powers that uh um that we that i talk about in all these novels they are fighting against messiah so when messiah comes there's a battle that goes on in the spiritual world right so i do tell that story um but what's interesting is uh, oh so so remember how i said the nephilim were wiped out by the time of David and you never hear about them again. Right. Well, actually, 
you do hear about them again in an implied way in the story, in the Gospels of Jesus. Because when Messiah comes, he's casting out demons. He's cleansing the land from the demons. What's that about? What, where are these evil spirits? You know, if you read the Old Testament, there's nothing about evil spirits in the Old Testament. Right. Only one place, Saul. One place. So why would the Old Testament not talk about all this demonic activity? I don't, I don't believe that that means there wasn't any, but I believe it's a theological reason, right? And so um, when Jesus comes, all of a sudden there's this demonic activity that explodes. What's going on here? Well, nobody, the Bible does not tell you what evil spirits, where they come from. They just exist. A lot of people assume that they're demons and the demons are the same things as fallen angels. I explain that that's not the case through in all my books. And basically, uh, the watchers and angels are a different creature than evil spirits. And um, because angels, whether they're fallen or not, are described as having some kind of heavenly flesh. But evil spirits don't have flesh. They're looking for bodies to inhabit. So they're different beings altogether. So who are they? What are they? Where do they come from? There's no explanation in the Bible. However, there is an explanation in a book that the Bible quotes the book of First Enoch. And in that book, it, it makes the argument that the demons, the evil spirits, are the spirits of the dead Nephilim. So when the Nephilim were killed, yeah, they were destroyed out of the land by King David, right? But David never brought the final kingdom of God. So those, the spirits of the Nephilim are still in the land, see? And they don't go to heaven or hell because they're hybrid creatures. You know, a human will die and will go to shale. But when an angel is destroyed, they don't go to shale. And Nephilim were part angel, part human. So so where do they go? Well, they, they travel the earth, right? And that's sort of the understanding of it. That I basically believe that, you know, what that really looks like, I don't know. But, but nevertheless, um, when Jesus comes, he's the true final son of David who gets kicks the Nephilim finally out of the land, but not the physical Nephilim, the spirits of the dead Nephilim. And that's what he's doing. He's cleansing the land for Messiah to come in and bring the kingdom. However, it doesn't end there because um, until Messiah judges the old covenant and brings in the new covenant for, for finality, things aren't over yet. And that's when I wrote Chronicles of the Apocalypse. Chronicles of the Apocalypse then tells the story of jo John the Apostle when he wrote the book of Revelation. And what happened, it, it, I retell the story about that Josephus talks about the wars of the Jews where the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and, and the destruction by the Roman armies was very, very, very significant. Uh, you could say that the stars fell from the sky, the moon turned to mm -hmm. blood. Um, because it was theologically the end of the old covenant. Now, yes, Jesus, by dying and raising from the dead, he initiates that new covenant, but it's not, it's initiated but not consummated until the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So it's God's historical. He's not abstract and philosophical merely. So until that event occurs, that's not completed. And so that's kind of my picture of what I'm what I'm telling in those stories. We've got a lot off topic of the of I Jezebel, know. but I, I, I mean, still, I hope that your listeners will find those fascinating because they're all in the same universe. Like I say, they're all the same kinds of stories, just uh, retelling these biblical stories with the Watchers and such. And um, I, yeah, I hope so, that it so, makes it come alive. Oh yeah, and so uh, tell everyone where they can find your book. 
Okay, there's two places. If you want to just look into it more and find out what is all this stuff about, go to Godawa.com, my name, G-O-D-A-W-A.com. And you can find all my book series there, information on all of them, artwork, a bunch of free articles, a bunch of free stuff. It's, it's, it's a good – it's a cool website. It's not boring at all. If you want to just go in and look at and read about what are the books about, go directly to Amazon. All my books are on Kindle, paperback, and audiobook on Amazon exclusively. And you can find out pretty much anything you want to know about the books there because book descriptions are very helpful, and, and that's all on Amazon. All right, Brian. Well, thanks for coming back on. I really appreciate it. It's always fun to talk to you, man. Thanks for having me on, bro. Stop.